And that's when it clicked with me. I thought, these are not superheroes. These are just men that can do super things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because... They won't quit. Because they won't quit. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. My guest today is technically Dr. Christopher J. Burns, M-D-F-A-C-S, but I have heard him called many other things, including Commander Burns and other such notable titles, but you'll hear me disrespectfully referring to him as Burnsy, a.k.a. Dabern, a.k.a. my short German friend. It's a personal one today. I won't give you major details because it's a long conversation. I say conversation because I speak a lot because that's the nature of my relationship to Burns as it has been for over 30 years. Full disclosure, he thinks you will be bored because he's boring, according to him. In his estimation, as you'll hear repeatedly throughout the conversation, we ramble too much. We're not funny, nor are we poignant. I beg to differ. He says I'm biased. You be the judge. This past fall, we sat down at our alma mater, Boston College, prior to eating copious amounts of linguine with seafood in the North End. I don't want to give you spoilers because he's the real life Forrest Gump, so I'm not going to tell you everything he's done. I guess you could say the top three are that he was a U.S. Navy SEAL and he is currently a trauma surgeon in Boston, as well as a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Despite the fact that he is a total slacker, I consider him like a brother. I trust my life and my family's lives in this man's capable hands. That said, we get a bit goofy. I talk a little too much. We reminisce potentially to the point of alienating you, but we cover a lot of ground. So sit back, relax, and take a ride with Dr. Christopher J. Burns. It's actually hard to interview someone that you know so well because you're like it feels so, it feels so official. But um, this one, I, what, I, you know, I, I've been intimidating you for you've been twenty five years. <laughs> I'm not a doctor, am I a doctor? Um, okay, so we years. just had a conversation. First of all, this is pretty cool. We are at Boston College on campus in one of their buildings. That's where we met in. 1994, September, uh, I'm sorry, September of 1990. Um, we heard about each other around 1987 because our, our brothers, our older brothers, both went to BC, graduated three years ahead of us. They were seniors when we were freshmen, but my intro to you was sophomore year of high school. My brother going, Dave Burns' little brother benches 260. What do you bench? <laughs> So you were like you were kind of you were kind of like a a monster in my house in my mind like three years before I met you and then it was it really I didn't know I was going to BC I finally get there we meet and it really could have been disastrous if we didn't like each other think about that yeah I mean there's there was no reason to believe we were going to go to Boston College either of us um, and then as as we were just telling your friends you know my brother 
Dave was saying, you know, Artie's brother is six foot four. How tall are you? I'm like, well, I'm five foot four. He's like, yeah, you're not as cold <laughs> as he is. <laughs> so we, we, you and I were living in each other's shadows without having ever known each other. Without having met each other. And then my, my first recollection of you was um, I tracked you down on upper campus and I went to Fenwick dorm and I was like, uh, do you know where Chris Burns is? And somebody pointed over and there were you, this little German Irish, you know, stocky by, 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 dude. By the way, by then I had made it all the way up to five, six. You were five, six. At I that mean, point. some people might say five, five and a half, but uh, the, my driver's license says five, six. So that's what I'm going with. So five, six is, is what he's going. That's the official. Yeah. And you were, you were, you know, kind of stocky five, six. You had no socks and white bucks on and, and shorts and you were, and you were, uh, and very southy. And you, yeah, you were very southy, and you were flanked by like eight dudes. And I think you all went to Georgetown Prep, and you had like a whole crew of Georgetown Prep guys with you. And you were just honestly, if I could say, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell blink theory is that like what you your first impression. You could go through all these different machinations of who someone is, but it comes back to the first impression. My very, very, very first impression of you was leader. Which is pretty cool considering what you've gone on to do. I just get goosebumps saying that because it really was. It was like, here's this dude. He's just like fun loving, you know, walking down the hallway, right down the middle, like a strut, but not in a um, not in a way that was was like a jerk, but just like a but a confidence and and like a fun vibe and all these guys behind you and. Um, so, so the the joke was, I lived at the time for like a week. I lived in a, a, a dorm that was off campus, and you lived. Do you remember what that was called? Yeah, Great Cliff. Yeah, and uh, Wiki lived there the yeah. whole year. But yeah. I moved out. I moved to Upper. But that first week, our brothers made fun of us because we met, and then like, I think we hung out somewhere. It was and the then, first night. Oh, was it the first night? Yeah. You walked me back that way and we were talking so you kind of came all the way over and then we were like still talking so I was like oh well I'll go back that way and I walked like halfway back and then we were like all right see ya and we told our brothers that and they're like what do you, what's wrong with you <laughs> so yeah I walked you home off campus and then you walked me home back on campus <laughs> and then we're it was- but we but the point was we just we totally hit it off and and have had this friendship over the years that spans, you know, whatever that is, 30 years almost, where when we were at BC, we really got into these these long, we we bounced together at Great Scott's before we bartended there. And when we would bounce, it was like a terrible, you know, Tuesday night or something. Nobody was there. They wouldn't let us be <clears throat> on stools. So we, we would talk. <laughs> we, like- we, we would get $30 for the night and then we would get a portion of the tips which there was no one there. So Which was get, like $2. It was like 2 bucks. So we basically made $32 working from 8 until 2. And then we had to clean up. And then that's when I found out that, that women are far more dirty than men because I would have to clean up the girls' room. And there would just – that place was a complete disaster. Was it really? Oh, oh I feel like so awful. Really? Oh, my gosh. I find the, the, the complete – anytime I've gone into a women's room, I feel like it's so clean in the men's room. Have you like, gone to the stalls? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I had to go in the stalls and clean up. And I think they were purposefully missing their toilet at times. Um, and really? Uh, Maybe yeah. the guys were going in there and doing yeah, that. I don't know. Possible. That's probably what it was. Yeah, probably some of those Boston Boston. But kids. I remember us having like nonsensical 
conversations about like the movie Hook, like dissecting it for six hours because we had nothing to do. Nothing, the irony is not, there was no one coming. There was no one coming. We couldn't sit down and that was it. So we, we asked were, once. It was like 11. And we're like, can we sit. just get a stool and just sit for 30 minutes? There's yeah. no one here. But it all paid off. And they said, no, Senior you have year, to stand because someone may come in. Someone may come in. But senior year, it paid off when we bartended and we actually made, at the time, it was great money for us and all of our friends came in. And it was all liquid. The point is, we had, well, first of all, those long conversations and kind of keeping your mind occupied, those are skills that I think certainly have helped me as an actor because there's a lot of time waiting for things to happen in between things happening. There's a lot of time to fill your mind. And, and like you choose what to fill it with. And I know for you in the military, and we'll get into those years and some of that experience, there's a lot of time. It's the same thing. It's like, you know, there could be like a, a period of waiting, 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 and then boom, there's a lot of action. Um, and there's a lot, like every military guy I've met, aside from you, they all say like, you know, the guys you wanted to hang with were the ones that could just talk. Like they knew movies, they knew this, they, they were like well-versed in, in every Thing, and it was great to be around them because they could just they could talk about a variety of topics. I think you're one of those guys. Um, I, I want to get into like people are maybe listening, going, "Are they? Is he going to ask him any questions?" And I don't know. Nobody I don't want to hear a question. <laughs> um, oh yeah, is it true that you are short and German? <laughs> I uh, am Germanic and Irish, and I am challenged by gravity, and therefore I am short and German. So, but I also have many different nationalities running through my blood. Yes. And, and, uh, this is like one of the few topics, if you're listening right now, this is one of the few times actually where, uh, just by sitting down with me, uh, Bernsey is agreeing to admit his, um, illustrious uh, career path. He, he has been, I, I asked him to sit down with me before this podcast was even had started and he was very uh, reluctant to do it. It was only when his older sister, Pam, saw me say something about interviewing another former SEAL on Instagram and she said, you should interview Chris. I said, well, Chris has been ducking me for like two and a half years. He finally gave in. Um, I know you're very... Uh, private about your accomplishments. That's just part of who you are. Uh, getting ready to come talk to you, I was thinking, I probably drop your name. It's really pathetic, actually. I, I think I drop your name more than anybody else. Like anybody who knows me is like, oh yeah, Bernsey, that's the guy who was the SEAL. But I think it's just, it's such a dynamic thing from former Navy SEAL to trauma surgeon. It's, you know, two elite positions, two, um, in some ways, I guess, similar in some ways, but also uh, one is maybe more on the attack. The other is mending. They're, 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 it's a unique thing to, to know that you've done both of those. Um, I guess a great, a great place to start is uh, basically to rewind to like 30 minutes ago when we were walking up the stairs. And I said, so what do you, I said, I said, do you teach at Harvard? Because I tell everybody you also teach at Harvard, but I don't even know if that's true. And you kind of explained it to me. I'd love for you to explain to uh, people listening what it is, you're, you're on faculty at Harvard. So just explain that. It's not like you're in lecture halls <clears throat> giving classes Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Right. So I am at an academic hospital. So there's Various hospitals. There's private 
hospitals, there's community hospitals, there's academic hospitals. And then the academic hospitals are associated with an institution. And so Tufts Hospital is associated with a, a place here, Boston University Medical Center is associated with BU Medical School, residents and all that stuff. And so where I am at Brigham and Women's Hospital is the hospital for Harvard Medical School. So there are a few Harvard teaching hospitals, but right physically next to my hospital is the concrete buildings of HMS, Harvard Medical School. So I am an instructor in surgery at Harvard Medical School, which puts me on faculty at Harvard. But there are a ton of people, you know, in all aspects of Harvard and Harvard Graduate School um, that are also on faculty. So, so you're not that big of a deal. Not at all. <laughs> no, I, I am one of many. All right, the interview's done. Oh, it's right. yeah, yeah. I thought you were more special than that. Let's go get some Italian food. Um, so. Okay, so it, it, it's it's as though you are a teacher, but they're coming into your place of work for their classroom. They come, they they physically come to your OR and work with you alongside well, you, or do they watch you through? a Well, gal? the residents are Harvard residents, and they're the people that I teach. There, I do give didactic lectures, and um, I teach them in the operating room or on rounds. Then the HMS students um, will scrub in or make rounds or be in clinic or whatever. And we kind of teach by the Socratic method and ask them questions and kind of find out where they're weak in something. And then once we find out they're weak in something, we attack them there and kind of draw questions, you know, and we ask questions to draw answers out of them. And so we teach by that method. Um, Sometimes we'll do small group sessions where we sit down and I kind of have a formalized cookie cutter lecture that I'm that I've given a ton of times. Yeah. But again, I don't I don't I don't park in Cambridge and walk through the right. Harvard Common and teach in a lecture hall of two hundred okay. students. I think this is a good time to interject with a little story from Great Scots where we used to bartend together. <laughs> because we're talking about you teaching. And we had another friend, Wellesley, who was uh working who was working, I think, as a as a, a doorman. And and we were at the end of a shift. And this is just hey, well, I think it was the end of might have been our last shift. Oh, the last shift. I okay. Think that so was whatever it was, I think Wellesley said, yeah. How do you make a red death or something like that? And I my answer was kind of like, you know, eh, you put a little bit of, you know, it was like there's vodka, and then you put a little bit of slow gin, which is red, and a little of this and a little of that. And it was like, you kind of get it red, and there you go. And you were like, I but but I overheard you telling him before I chimed in, you were like, it's a 1.5 pour of you know vodka, a 2.7 pour of slow gin. You will put a squirt of whatever. It was so specific. And I was like, oh, oh, that's why, that's why he went on to be a seal and I went on to be an actor. I was, you know, we had a different approach. I I do remember once there was like that awful shot. It was like grape crush, I think they called it. Um, And it involved razzmatazz. It was really popular with the ladies in the early nineties. It was sweet and purple and 
tasted like candy. And um, and then I, I remember once, <laughs> do you remember, have I told you this story? I think you've told me the story. Yeah. I don't know if I yeah. remembered it. Yeah. But. And so you, I think someone, or, you know, a bunch of really pretty girls ordered six shots and then you made it and delivered it to them. And they were so happy. They thought the shots were so good, but they were green. I mean, there was, <laughs> was nothing, nothing. And I think they were, you know, the, 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 the flavor of the alcohol was irrelevant. They just wanted to get six shots uh, from you. This is, this is what you do. You deflect, you deflect your, your excellent. Okay. So so <laughs> moving back to teaching, I, I had to take that little uh, that little segue there. Just in all seriousness, you are a teacher at heart. Uh, you're a coach at heart. You're kind of, that's the way your mind works in terms of, you're very good at, at, at taking complex uh, issues or situations and, and breaking them down to their bare essentials, I think. I'm imagining... That's a little bit of what you do in the OR. I've seen you do, I saw you speak at Camp Pendleton and that was, you know, totally off the cuff. And you were there speaking to these, a whole variety of people from officers, ER doctors, uh, uh, enlisted men, people that did, you know, nurses, uh, people that had never been deployed. And you were talking about combat medicine and drawing from your experience, totally off the cuff. And you got very, very specific. And you also did it in a way that was very approachable. I remember you, you know, showing like a, a little video that you had made from, I think, Afghanistan of, of, you know, some of the stuff that you guys had done. And it was fun with good music. And I think you cut it together yourself and some video of Seattle and the coffee you had there. I don't know, <laughs> oh, yeah. but, but, but it was fun. And that, that is, I think that's part of your, uh, your your skill set is is this all around guy who can kind of do everything, but like makes it seem like you're doing nothing. You 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 would be out with us till you know two in the morning, and then we thought we we're all the same. But it turned out that you were getting up at six in the morning and training for a marathon or going to ROTC, and that's just that that is in the in your DNA. If you ask anybody that that knew you. That's what they're going to say. I'm imagining if I ask anybody that knows you now, they're going to give me the same answer too. You're just, you are a a a, a workhorse and a good guy. I'm going to stop kissing your ass now, and we're going to go back in time. But just, just one one comment on the teaching thing. I remember my there are certain phrases and teaching that my dad has given me through the years, and, and he's always said, "You don't actually know something until you can teach it." And I think that's probably true. So I try to, I take time to try to actually learn it. Because if you can't explain it to somebody, then you don't really know it. Yeah. I just, I just said that to Donovan the other day. It was something with, with Bronwyn. I said, why don't you teach her how to do that? If, you know, it'll help you learn more. And I've said it to Bronwyn recently doing homework with her. I said, tell me while you're doing it, explain to me what you're doing. I agree. You can you can work it out in your head more if you can explain it, and you do a, a excellent job of that. So I want to go back to the, um, you know, the disrespect. The, the <laughs> does everybody hear that? The buzzing of the cell phone. I yeah, am. I'm a busy doctor. I'm on call. <laughs> everybody wants call. me. Um, are you? Do you have to leave? Uh, the, no, no, I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm on. Uh, I've got residents manning the ship for me while I'm here. Um, the so I want to go back to the early years. Uh, Dick and Lorna, your parents, awesome people, just like you, you come from a, a great family of love and support, uh, D.C. area. Um, 
take us back to yeah, Bethesda, Maryland, growing up. What was that like? What What did you What did you get from your household? <clears throat> I mean, so I got a lot, and I would say my childhood was um, probably it was pretty easy childhood. I mean, I think about when I hear about bullying now, and I had a couple people that growing up might have bullied me once or twice, but uh, I didn't really have problems with bullying. I didn't have, you know, my some of my son's friends right now or a couple of them are having problems adjusting to the new school year and giving him a hard time. And, um, and he was upset with it. And I thought, you know, I've never really had really good friends giving me a, a hard time. I, I've never, I've just been lucky, really. I mean, I, I look back and, you know, uh, every every birthday we had presents, every Christmas we had presents. We'd do a vacation to the beach every year. Um, Virginia. Uh, uh, well, we'd start off at, uh, we would go to Wildwood, New Jersey. Okay. <clears throat> um, and then we did a few years down at the Outer Banks. Um just a little bit, though, and then we yeah. really settled on Hilton Head before it exploded to what Hilton Head is now. Um, I, I also think probably in the 70s and 80s, things were a little different. There wasn't so much parental involvement. I mean, there was no helicopter parent back then, so you had to do things on your own. Um, I mean, I remember coming back from swim team in the summer, pretty young age. I mean, probably nine or 10 and, you know, making bacon, frying eggs, making breakfast sandwiches, things like that. And really? Just, yeah, my, my mom was teaching summer school. My dad was at work. And <clears throat> if I wanted, you know, a breakfast sandwich, I made it myself, which is fine. There's no reason not to. I don't, not, you know, um, you had more independence. Uh, our neighborhood was kind of one main road in and out. And then when you got into the depth of the neighborhood, you, there weren't cars passing through, taking ways who didn't know the neighborhood going all over the place, speeding, distracted on cell phones. So you could really just ride your bike all over the neighborhood, kind of go to anyone's house, play in the creek. Um, I mean, we always say, you know, my, my mom kicked us out in the morning and then said, come back when it's dinner time. Yeah, know? same, same here. I've um, talked about that. Yeah, a yeah. cowbell she would ring. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and even at dinner time, you barely wanted to come in. It was like when the street lights went off at 8 o'clock, like, geez, we got to better head home. Yeah. Um, having... The reason I say that really is because having traveled the world and then doing various hospital work throughout the country, I mean, you get exposed to groups that maybe you wouldn't normally be exposed to, exposed to, you know, um, and, um, you know, drugs weren't an issue. Even in my high school, I mean, quite frankly, people drank, but I think senior year, people started smoking marijuana, a few, yeah. barely, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I it, 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 I wasn't really distracted with things, you know. I mean, I went to school, I played sports, I did my homework. It was, it was pretty easy. So it was, you know. I, yeah. I mean, it's very boring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, if anybody's wondering why he's on a show called Ten Thousand Knows, if he's saying it's easy, I think we do get into it. And I think, like, you know, as I'm listening to you. Saying, yeah, I mean, I, I largely feel the same way. I mean, I have things I can dissect and go, oh, this could have been, you know, it's not like I had, I definitely had stuff, but in general, yeah, pretty happy childhood, pretty, pretty sheltered. Um, I think with you, I think you uh, largely, a lot of your, where I would say 
you know, resilience and no's and 10,000 no's comes from a lot of things that were self-imposed. And I think that's part of interesting. You say you were not distracted. That That's kind of a very good descri- description of you, period. You are not distracted. You're one of the most focused people that I know. When you say you're going to do something, you do it to the nth degree. Um, and I think about your childhood just because, you know, maybe you're thinking, oh, I don't have to bring this up. But uh, Bernsey also, and I don't want it to nauseate you, some of the stuff he's done. My brother and I call him Forrest Gump because he's <laughs> kind of done, like lived like a hundred really cool lives in one. Um, but one of the things you were, I believe, when you were like eight years old or something, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, gymnastic champion or something. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, <clears throat> I did gymnastics. Um, I think I joined the team. I feel like it was called Gymnastics America. I'm not sure. I joined, tried out and made the team at age six. And then I uh, competed until I think I was, I can't remember if I was 10 or 12 when I stopped. Um, Now, mind you, uh, there weren't a ton of kids in Delaware, Maryland, Virginia doing gymnastics. Yeah, but. uh, But I, 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 to, to, to answer your question, there was the Delmarva. Uh, tournament that uh, I took first um, at the all around, and then my kind of my pinnacle was this East Coast tournament where I came in second place. Um, but again, the tr- truly the you know the number of kids in along the East Coast that were doing competitive gymnastics at that age wasn't a high number. So, um, but you're saying that and, you know, self-deprecating and all that kind of stuff, but the other guys that were on your team went on to win Olympic gold medals. Yeah. Uh, not gold. So was it Bart? uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, there, there was a, uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to give names of people. Yeah. There, there was a phenomenal gymnast who went to, we went to junior high together and he ended up going to, uh, college at Stanford. He won, um, the silver medal in the 96 Atlanta Olympics, a phenomenal athlete. And then there was another guy from, I think it was from Reston, Virginia, who was in the 88 Olympics, but I'm not, I'm not sure he actually medaled, but it was a pretty small team. And of, of those who were at, on the team at some point too, did go to the Olympics. And I, and the way I remember it was you made a decision at one point, it was like, you can go left and that might be Olympics for you, but it's going to really be all-inclusive, or you can go right and, you know, play some normal sports and have like a little more, quote, normal childhood. That's how I remember it. You were kind of presented with that and you decided let's go more normal route. Right. Yeah. I don't know where my parents had asked me. I did come to that crossroads where I showed enough talent that I might have a future in gymnastics. Um, in truly competitive gymnastics. And my parents asked me what I wanted to do with my life. And I told them I wanted to be a doctor. And Did they, you really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How old? Um, I think I was 10. That's cool. I don't know yeah. if I knew that. Oh, I knew I wanted to be a doctor at age five, a surgeon. Yeah. I haven't told you that story. Maybe you told me that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, don't, I only listen to a small percentage <clears throat> of what you actually say. It's very smart. <laughs> um, and so my parents said they didn't know any um, um, Olympic gymnasts who went to medical school. I'm not sure they knew. <laughs> I'm not sure they actually did much research. Not like they went on the, the interweb and checked it out and said, who, who does it? But uh, so that made, that was the decision. When, when I said that, they said, all right, well, we're not, I mean, it, we're not going to dedicate his life to one thing that may preclude a bigger goal. 
Um, and plus then, you know, different, probably would have gone to a different high school, all the other sports that I did. I certainly wouldn't have become a frogman. I mean, my whole life would have been different. Yeah. And all you need is one in- injury and then that's over. Or maybe I wouldn't have panned out, you know, just because they saw potential in me, um, you know, doesn't mean that I was actually going to make the Olympic team. Right. Um, so uh, I think, you know. But when I say normal life, so he goes and has this normal life, but that included when you were in what, like sixth grade, there was a breakdancing crew at your high school, I think, right? And they had, or maybe not even at your high school, whatever it was, you could tell the story or I could tell yeah. it, you know. Uh, but basically you were like the the little blonde kid. Yeah. Who someone said, hey kid, try a... Yeah, so I went, <clears throat> I went to Sidwell Friends, a school in Washington, D.C., um, uh, and, um, this, yeah, I think it was probably 83, 84 gymnastics, uh, sorry, um, breakdancing was becoming popular and it, it was, it was amazing. There was a fire in me that was, was insatiable. I, I can't even describe when I saw, um, it was New York city crew, um, and uh, New York City Breakers and Rocksteady Crew, those two. Me too, by the way. Yeah. You know, I had my cardboard and uh, I did the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I, when I, 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 almost more so than anything I've done in my life, I wanted to do breakdancing to that level um, with a passion that I, I, I actually really can't describe. And so I went to Sidwell, which was uh, at our campus. There's a lower school, middle school, and an upper school. And the middle school and the upper school are kind of on, on the same campus. The lower schools in, in, in Bethesda, the middle and upper are in D.C. And I saw some some people breakdancing, and I asked a kid to show me how— These were high schoolers. Because our lunchroom, my fifth and sixth grade lunchroom, opened up to where the high school was. And I saw these people breakdancing, and a guy showed me a technique to do a backspin. And I went home, and I practiced for like three days. And— um, I could get more than 20 revolutions at the end of it. So I went back like three days later and I found the guy and I said, hey, look what I can do. And he was, you know, <laughs> surprised. Um, and so there were uh, a, a sophomore, two seniors that were on the team, or the crew, I guess, um, and then a bunch of other guys from uh, from kind of downtown D.C., um, and we started doing performances and shows. We were called the Warpath Breakers. Um, <laughs> and you uh, were in what grade? Six? At this point, yeah, this was sixth grade. Uh, there were a couple of things I could do that because of my gymnastics, other people couldn't do. So, you Windmill? Know, were you rocking I did windmills? the windmill. Yeah, yeah. windmill. I'd do the, this hand spin. I would, I'd do all this other crazy stuff. Um, and our... Um, we danced at these parties with like the, the Redskins were there, and I met Bianca Jagger. I remember as, asking her, "Why'd you, why'd you divorce Mick Jagger?" <laughs> when um, you're in sixth grade. Yeah, yeah, grade. yeah, yeah. We could these the Redskins thing. Now, was that at the White House, or is that a typical Del Negro that, that, Burns embellishment? That that's a typical. Di- Burns Deli uh, uh, embellishment. Okay, because I tell I tell people <laughs> no. I don't really fact check any yeah. of the things I say about you to people. I just say, yeah, he did this thing and he breakdanced. I think he breakdanced in the White House yeah. for the Redskins. No, it eh. wasn't the whole team, but I think Little Joe. It might have been a house that was white. Yeah, that's right. And it was. <laughs> I think it was a house in, in downtown DC in Georgetown or something. Yeah. Um, uh, I remember um, Peter Jennings. I, I didn't appreciate it quite at the time, but he sat down with me. He had a little um, notepad. Peter Jennings, front, the news anchor. Yeah, with a with a piece of paper, a little 
Pat Did he live in your neighborhood no, or something? No, he was there because they had all these famous people there. Um, and he had this little nubbing of a pencil. And he sat down and he just started asking me questions. Um, like, I mean, he wasn't interviewing me for a piece, but he was talking to me and writing things down. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, that's kind of neat. Um, there's not a lot of people probably that, you know, have been, Peter Jennings wrote down what they had to say. And I'm sure he then trashed that piece of paper when I had <laughs> nothing good to say. Um, but our, um, the, the pinnacle of that was, I think it was like 38 or 40 crews had this competition in D.C. for the best breakdancing crew in Washington, D.C. in like 1984. Three. Might have been 1984. Um, and uh, there was a TV show called PM Magazine that was there and filming yeah. everything. And uh, um, there were New York City Breakers were there and I danced with them. It was pretty cool. Wow. So then we did a performance and we stayed up really late and it was I was way past my bedtime. So I was falling asleep and we won. We're our Warpath City Warpath Breakers were not, was the number one. Amazing! This is why crew. you get the Forrest Gump Award. <laughs> I mean, really, it's like it, that is a total Forrest Gump moment, it, it and was. you and you have so many of them in your life, and it's and it's it's kind of cool because you'll you'll never really tell these stories. Like if anybody's listening and you're going like, wow, he's kind of. He's kind of annoying. He's done all this stuff. Like he's, it sounds like he's really great at all these things. But this is the thing. This guy doesn't talk about it. Like, like people like me will pull it out of you, but you don't really talk about it. I feel like you're, you know, uh, th this, this story, and I don't mean to just jump in time, but I'm going to anyway. It's my show, damn it. I'm going <laughs> to jump in time. But, but, you know, way later on, uh, I believe this was after you were done being uh, a SEAL, you were, I, I believe in as a as a surgeon you were in Kandahar and you were doing and again forgive me if I'm butchering any of these stories but this is how I always tell it so this is now the truth no I the the, the story I heard was so you you said something about like oh somebody asked me you were trying to help me out and you said uh, some some guy is making a movie about uh, uh, you know some people are making a movie about. Um, the seals and I thought maybe I could like hook you up and you know I gave your name and I was like oh what what was the deal what was the the scenario basically and the, it, it was you said oh I, this guy came up and asked me you know if I could help him out talking about like what happens with the teams and everything and I'm too busy so I passed him on to someone else when I came to find out through other people why you were where you were, which I believe could have been the White House or somewhere in D.C., I'll call it the White House. <laughs> you were being I given spend most of my time, yeah, most of your time in the White House. Yeah. You were being and given an award, way. which you never told me. I had to find out from my brother through your brother. You were being given an award, I believe, something along these lines. I don't know if I like this interview. <laughs> no, but, but it, you know, but, but because because you had gone and and. Because of your your background uh, as a SEAL, you went as a doctor and you were going out in the field and helping bring people back, injured uh, soldiers back in the medvac and, and having a, an actual surgeon on the medvac with them. And it was a and, and my point is, it's another Forrest Gump moment where you're getting this award. And that guy, I, I said, I came back to you and said, what was that guy's name? You said, ah, Mark something. I'm like, oh, that's Mark Bowl. He just produced Hurt Locker, which just won the Oscar with Captain Bigelow. <laughs> and they're talking about Zero Dark Thirty, which they're about to make. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. And you're just too busy. You're focused on what you're doing and don't even realize or care really about 
the accolades and all of that. That's not really, that's how I've always experienced you. That's not what you're in it for. So I guess, you know, I should find a question in here somewhere, which is, what is it that drives you to do all of these things you've done? Because you, you've you really taken on some huge challenges. And like you said, you had this, what you call easy childhood, but then your response to it was, put more on my plate, put more on my plate. I want challenges. You are a guy that seeks out massive challenges and pretty much figures a way to figures a way out. Um, what is it? What, what's the thing? Like, what, what is it that you are drawn to in those? Is it just to help? Is it to help people? There are many things. So kind of to touch on, to give you an answer, but also to touch on what you were talking about. So, and your story is pretty, pretty accurate. So when I was a chief resident at Bethesda Naval doing my residency and we had a ton of casualties, as I referred to, that those were the bad old days. And we were just, it was nonstop operating on these kids. I mean, day, night, weekends, holidays. I mean, it was, we were in the OR nonstop trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Um, and there was a, uh, a uh, Marine Special Operations medic um, who took a sniper around through the chest in Afghanistan and then got flown to me uh, shortly thereafter. And I, I think I did like over 20 operations on him. Um, they took out, you know, his, 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 I think it came through his left chest. So it took his, you know, spleen, part of his pancreas, his bowels. It was just, a, it was a mess. So we got him through everything. He actually became, kind of became a friend of mine. We're the same age. I mean, our lives, you know, uh, came together. But I mean, if we were in high school, I think, you know, you would have been a good friend of mine. We kind of naturally hit it off. Um, and then, uh, so that's kind of part, part, part of the story. Um, um, his name is Anthony Tony. He goes by, I'll spare his last name just because I don't know if he wants anyone to know all the specifics of his injuries. Um, and then when I was in uh, Kandahar, there was talk about organizing this thing called um, this en route care team where they would take critical care providers and they would fly by helicopter to other smaller hospitals um, to pick up critically injured patients and then use our critical care knowledge in the helo to transport patients that are probably unstable and exceed the medical uh, knowledge of the medics that are flying them. Um, now, with that said, as you're kind of flying, you know, you, anytime you go up in a helo, you're susceptible. Ex- very, very much so. Um, and um, so I was able to do some of these uh, missions, and that's what, you know, these medical missions, um, which was pretty cool. Um, one of the Actually, two 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 odd stories, but really sad. One, one of our like, kind of counterpart missions um, called Pedro 66, because I work with the Air Force PJ sometimes. Um, I think coming in landing, an RPG took them out. Um, I was not on board. I was back at, at back at Kandahar, and we got both pilots. Um, certainly a few deaths, um, and uh, I operated on one of the pilot. I had to do surgery on him and a partner operated on another. And so it was pretty bad because that kind of brings it home. I was like, well, this could have been us. Um, and then there was another time where I was actually going to go to another uh, base to do a similar thing. This is actually kind of sponsored with, through the SEALs. Um, and the logistics didn't quite work out. Um, and my flight actually took an RPG and, and everyone died in that helo. Um, and so they and actually- And you were supposed to be on yeah, it. Yeah, I was supposed to be on it. So, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, this is war. I mean, this is yeah. <laughs> these aren't the, the, these are not 
Special story. These are not special stories. This is what happened. This is what happened. Um, so, I mean, to some degree, you might say it was actually irresponsible of me to volunteer to go pick up these kids to bring them to bring them back. Um, but so to kind of answer your question, so why do I do it? So it's it's multiple things. So one, it is giving back because I think I appreciate that I've been I've been given stuff, so I want to you know give back some things. Um, some of it is the challenge. Um, I remember the very first time taking off and then flying. Um, and I think we, we had a, we had a gunship flying with us cause we were flying with, I think the 101st, um, and they don't have, um, guns on board. The, the PJs have guns on board. The, uh, we would have a gunship flying with us as, uh, as air support. And there must've been someone down below. Cause I think they unloaded their 50 cal on, on somebody. Um, and there I am just sitting, <laughs> sitting in the helo thinking this may not have been the smartest decision I've ever made. Um, but um, so there is some element of, of challenge or some element of adventure, um, but you quickly, those adventures become very real when, you know, lives are on the line, whether you're in a war, whether you're in a trauma bay at two in the morning and your patient's dying in, in your hands. Um, so this isn't for um, sport um, by any means. Uh, I, and then there's the, I don't, I don't know what, what else there is. I mean, there's then kind of that indescribable thing. Um, when I, so to go back to why I wanted to be a surgeon, um, when I was born, I had a bunch of fluid in my middle ear, which um, made me hear almost as if I were underwater. And, you know, sound is distorted underwater. So when I was a kid and really young, I talked funny, but everyone thought it was cute until I was four or five and it's no longer cute. And my parents think, there's an actual problem here. Like this is this isn't a funny kid talking. There's a there's a problem. So I got taken to the ENT, and so they I mean, I'm, very minor procedure. I got taken. My adenoids were taken out, and they put tubes in my ear and drained all the fluid. But then I had to see a speech pathologist because I had to kind of relearn how to speak. And there were um, exercises that I would have to do in front of the mirror because I would have to formulate my mouth in certain positions in order to phonate properly. And my speech pathologist was awesome. It was a guy who was a World War II guy. He lost a finger. Um, I thought it was super cool. And I remember, I don't remember this, but I know the story that my mom told me that it was in the summer and all these kids were playing outside. And my mom came upstairs and she's like, what are you doing? Why aren't you playing outside? And I said, I haven't finished my exercises yet because I wasn't going to go outside and play until I finished what the speech pathologist told me to do because I wanted to talk normal, you know? So maybe other people would have played and then done their exercises at night, but I had a goal and instruction. And I knew if I followed the instructions, I would meet my goal. Where does that come from in your DNA, your mom, your dad, both? They're both disciplined people. <clears throat> They're both disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. And that drive, it's in your whole family, I think. You're, it's really in there with you. I mean, it is, it is, I do agree there's a certain amount of, in your DNA that, that existed. Um, but then there, there's also, you know, I don't know if this is kind of changing the subject or on the same subject, but, you know, there, there's something about that um, 
what I love about that story, and I'm going to link it to another one of yours, which is, you know, people, you, you put you on paper and people go, oh, this, like I just said before, it's like, well, he really did a lot of things like, like that, there's no challenge there, but that was a challenge. You just chose to see it in a way that you overcame it and, and that brings confidence. That brings confidence that you actually helped yourself in that situation. And and you also sounds like you had a appreciation for the help that was given to you. And I don't know if you were starting to say that that speech pathologist in some way made you want to do that to help people, or if that, or if you're just bringing up the story just to show the, the, the discipline that's in you naturally. Uh, but well, what I was going to say about wanting to be a surgeon at age five, because that's what it was, it was 1977. Yeah. I was at DC Children's Hospital <clears throat> and I had a problem and the surgeon fixed it. And I, that was a very real tangible for me. And I thought, I want to be a surgeon because I want to take a problem and, and fix, fix it. it. Yeah. Not fix it with the medicine, not delay something, solve the problem and cure it. And so I knew that at age five. Very simple. Very like simple. I said, you distill things down to their simplest, purest form very well. I was going to mention, you know, that's a an example of a, you know, kind of a challenge you had to go through and overcame. And I know, you know, and, and, and I'm just thinking like th- this, this interview could interview conversation, whatever could go on for 10 hours because there are so many of them. We won't get to all of them. But one of the things I love is that a long time ago, you told me that you were, you were speaking to, I don't know who, uh, if it was when you were a doctor, when you were, it it was after SEAL, I I think it was after your time in the Navy and you were, you, you put your, your two resumes up on the, on the wall for people. And one was like all of these things that you failed in. And one was all of these things that this person failed in. And one was all these things that this person accomplished. And the, the, the moral, the story, the lesson was they were both you. It just depends how you look at it because it is easy to look and go, you know, Navy SEAL. And I do want to get into some of the bud stuff and all of that, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's easy to, to, to look at that, but, but there were with that, there were also, Shortcomings. There were also even even a whole time in college when I knew you, which I didn't know till later. When you said, "Really, college was a kind of in certain ways challenging to you." I never would have guessed it, but for you, I feel like there were there were certain aspects of it that were like a a, a hiccup compared to like pre college and post college. Um, Again, is there a question in there for you? <laughs> well, you remember when we, before you started recording, we were like joking around. You said, this is how I want the interview to be funny and hilarious. This is not funny nor hilarious. <laughs> and this is not, like, you'll have to edit this out, but this is not very interesting. I feel badly for you because we've talked about this, like this conversation for like 10 years. No, and, it's and not, not very really... interesting for you. It actually is interesting for me and I think for people to to hear because you're... I, I have a feeling after the first seven or eight minutes, they've gone to your next <laughs> podcast of someone that is probably a little more uh, exciting and relevant. Uh, I disagree. I disagree. Um, let's talk about the challenge of you wanted to be a, when I knew it, you wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. Yes. Really? Yes. Was what you always said. Why did yes. you end up, why did you end up going after uh, being a frogman yeah. instead of? So, so as, as I always point out, 
My desire to be a fighter pilot was pre-Top Gun, for the record. <laughs> I will fire when I'm goddamn good and ready to. You got that? I was the only kid in seventh grade at Sidwell Friends who had a picture, the only male, take that back, the only male uh, at Sidwell Friends who had a picture of Tom Cruise in their locker. Because I saw an article about Top Gun, and he was, uh, before it came out, and he was like in his, you know, his fighter, his flight suit and G suit and probably sitting in a F-14. Um, and I had that up on my locker because I was so interested in being a fighter pilot. I already had read Chuck Yeager's autobiography. For, I'd already known that I want to be a fighter pilot. And most people didn't really know what a, truly what a fighter pilot was. Because this is right. So post-Vietnam, my generation didn't talk much about fighter jets. And then pre Pre-Top Gun. So, you know, between like 75 and 1986 when Top Gun came out, no one was talking about fighter pilots. Um, so just for the record, it was pre-Top Gun. Um, and yeah, I just thought it would be a that, – that I did think would be a phenomenal adventure. Um, and when, you know, in 1981 with the – I think it was 81, certainly the early 80s when, you know, we got the, the Libyan MiGs um, and um, uh, uh, just – Probably growing up in the D.C. area and seeing – going to Annapolis and seeing jets fly over the, you know, the Naval Academy games before stuff. I just was always drawn to it. And I thought that would be a really remarkable way to earn a living, um, knowing that I always wanted to go to medical school after that. So I got the ROTC scholarship um, and my – Commanding officer was for four years. His last four years in the Navy was a retiring fighter pilot. So he flew F four Phantoms in Vietnam. Graduated the academy in like sixty six or sixty seven. Went over there in the bad years, sixty eight. Um, he actually was in the first um, F fourteen squadron ever when we got the Libyan MiGs. He was on like the Ready Alert five, where they were going to launch him within five minutes of one of our boys had gone down, or I guess two boys because there's a pilot in a Rio, um, and then was a XO and CO of an F-14 squadron. Um, he, he finished it with the VF-41, the Black Aces, out of Oceana, Virginia. So this guy was literally everything that, that I wanted, wanted to, to be, be. literally yeah. <laughs> my hero. And then um, sometime after, some, I started learning about the teams, the, the SEAL teams in, in ROTC, but they didn't ROTC ROTC. They didn't, they didn't really highlight the SEALs because there's only a few people that go on to become a frogman and they're training pilots and submariners and By the way, frogman for anybody, frogman is, is what SEALs were called before they were. Yeah, they were the underwater demolition team, the UDT frogman in World War II, and I'll skip the history, but yeah, frogman SEALs. Is the same synonymous. thing as SEALs, synonymous. Yeah. Okay, go on. Um, and um, I started learning about them. I bought a few books about Vietnam SEALs in particular. And in college. At in BC. college, okay. yeah. And I don't know. I, 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 what I liked is, um, it does kind of make me laugh when you say the first time you saw me was in front leading because truly a, as opposed to a Marine Corps officer or an army officer, something like that, a SEAL officer leads from the front. Um, the platoon is set up. So you have the point man, then the officer and every, the rest of the squad or the platoon behind them. 
Um, and I thought that was really interesting. As opposed to being a pilot, you're up there with a couple of other officers who went to the academy in BC and Holy Cross and UCLA and whatever. Um, you're all pretty similar people and you fly some jets and you come and you land, you go to the O Club and have a beer. Um, being versus on the ground, truly leading men um, for hours or days on end on a mission. So I already was attracted to that type of leadership as an officer. Then, um, and you can edit out all this because this is pretty boring stuff. It's not boring. But um, uh, I did this thing at, um, at uh, Little Creek, Virginia, which is an amphib base uh, near Norfolk. I did this week of marine stuff that was required by ROTC. And we secured, which means we finished business, at the end of the week um, early on a Friday. And they said, oh, you know, it's Friday at 1. You guys get, take the rest of the day off. And tomorrow you all go down to South Carolina to do your week of sub training and we just had the day off i think some people went to virginia beach and everyone hit the you know went out to hit the bars because <clears throat> there's a bunch of 20 year olds who were you know thinking like 20 year olds um but what i did was i actually ended up walking a few miles to where the seal compound was on little creek at the times it was seal teams two four and eight um now there's a 10 and seal team six is a whole separate thing and a, that's a whole separate conversation and um, that's out of damn neck virginia so I literally just walked in like the beating hot sun in July. And this is when? This, is, this what was, year summer, is this? This was uh, summer of 92 going into junior year college. Okay. okay. And I showed up to the quarter deck, which is a nautical term. It's just, just the front office. And some 19-year-old kid is sitting in the quarter deck. And I had my silly little reserve ID. And I said, my name's Chris. I think I want to be a SEAL. Can I talk to someone? I mean, just the total, total goof. Um, and as it turns out in the SEALs, they love taking Fridays off. So you usually, and I know this because this is what we did. You show up, you do this crazy, you do a morning, it's not called morning report, morning quarters. Um, and then you do this crazy team exercise where it's like a run, swim, run, or a five mile swim or whatever, a 10 mile run, whatever, something like that. Um, and then you clean up all your gear and you get out of there. So like by... Two in the afternoon on no a Friday, you're either deployed or you're you're gone because they try to you're gone so much on deployment or away training that they actually try to make the weekends and being back at home a little better. So there was nobody there. So there was this O3, this Navy lieutenant, which is like a captain in the Marine Corps or Army, um, who didn't have much going on. So this they actually called. And he was the operations officer. This guy brought me up to his office, sat and talked to me for 45 minutes about what it's like to be a frogman officer, then gave me a tour of the compound, took me to the dive dive area, saw the, saw the you know, the Draeger uh, closed unit circuit for, for scuba. I uh, went to the hangar and saw all the free fall stuff. They took me to their armory. We saw all their weapons. Um. And that was it. I was sold. Um, but what I find, what actually, one of the things I found most remarkable was, so now I've got this idea that these SEALs are superhuman and I actually want to do it, which I am not a superhuman. And um, uh, I, I had an opportunity. We were actually on the, off, uh, on the obstacle course. And I had heard that the SEALs do a long run do the O course 10 times. It's like a, you know, you're embellishing my stories. Yeah. They do the O course 10 times. They run 10 miles. They do the O course 10 times and then they run back. I'm like, well, that's just impossible. And sure enough, we're on the obstacle course and you see these guys running and they're all 
You know, they're all, no one's wearing a T-shirt. They all have their sideburns. They're totally out of regs. Their hair's long. Like, they just look cool. No one's wearing the same uniform. Like, these guys are just a mess. It's hilarious. And we were actually on the opposite course, and they paused. Actually, I think we were, like, finishing up. And I was just enthralled. I'd never really seen a, 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 a platoon in person. I was like, I'm watching Iron Man and... Captain America yeah. and all, you know, Batman, all these superheroes. And sure enough, they screw through the O course and they are flying through it. These guys are just physical specimens. And then they do it a second time. I'm like, oh my gosh, these guys are going to do it 10 times. This is not an embellishment. And they're cruising. And then they do it a third time. And the third time is not as fast as the first two times. And I'm like, oh, there's a chink in their armor. Like they're showing that they're, they can slow down. I'm surprised because superheroes don't slow down. Well, to make a very long story only long, they did do it 10 times. And by the end, they were so slow, they could barely raise their arms to get over obstacles. They were going so slow, I joke, they were basically going backwards. And these poor guys were dragging their silly, sorry asses, barely moving their feet, going back to their team compound because they were so smoked. And that's when it clicked with me. I thought, these are not superheroes. These are just men that can do super things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because... They won't quit. Because they won't quit. And I, I was, like, really drawn to that. And did, the you, did, you, did that make you feel like, oh, I can do that because I don't quit? I, I know, but like, did it make it less... Did it make it less of a of a? Um, they were less on a pedestal in a certain way, or more doable? More like maybe there's a chance they were actually more on a pedestal. I respected them more because it was so challenging, and they still they did, did it. Yeah. I mean, it, it. You know, my 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 wife talks about um, when you watch the Avenger movies, um, like Black Widow is her favorite superhero because she's a regular person. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of what I like about Batman. Like, I always find it, this is, you'll delete this as well, but I almost find it embarrassing that Superman has a nemesis that's a human, Lex Luthor. Like, really? Like, yeah. like you're, you can, you're faster than a speeding bullet, you know? Like, you can leap <laughs> tall buildings in a single bound, and a human is your nemesis? <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. But Batman is a normal guy. Yeah, same with Peter Parker, Spider-Man. No, but he got bit. Well, yeah, he did get, yeah. Yeah, he so he's that. now yeah, special. Yeah, That's okay, the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So right. for me, the fact that these SEALs weren't superheroes that got bit by a spider or were from another planet, but were actually men doing super things, that to me put them on a pedestal that I couldn't really grasp until I started going through the training, quite frankly. So once you... You know, and maybe we won't go into the buds. I, I love all of that stuff of what you had to do. And, and, you know, maybe we will, maybe we won't. But once you went through it yourself and you that now were one of those guys that you saw on the obstacle course, what did that do for your uh, your confidence? Like, is your is your confidence after doing something like that uh, and doing it for you did it for four years? Mm-hmm. Um and I, you know, I don't know where else, you, you know, let's say you did it for four years, but I, I believe you had some other things you did, but I don't know uh, what we <laughs> talked about. Um, you, at that point, is is the confidence, 
in just knowing that whatever the challenge is, you, you you won't quit. Is that where, as opposed to your capabilities, as a like the your strength or your speed? Is it just the mindset that you feel once you've gone through something like that, you feel like you can take most challenges on because you went through that, or or do you then present day come against things that could be totally different obstacles, maybe emotional, maybe something with the kids where you feel like you're in over your head. And then do you draw back on that kind of training and that kind of knowledge or confidence that you got through something in that way? Well, I think disappointingly, <laughs> uh, I it, it, it probably didn't give me the confidence that you think it might. Um, although, or, or at least I can appreciate that. I mean, there are still so many obstacles that I face. Um, and I don't think I can absolutely do that all, all the time by any means. I mean, I find myself usually clinically in the operating room in a really difficult situation. And I don't think, oh, well, you know, I get through pool comp, second phase of, you know, bud, so I'm sure I can get through this. No, I'm, you know, You're sweating it. Yeah. I am sweating it, yeah. you know, and kind of coming up with every possible trick in the book to, you know, solve the problem. Solve the problem. Um, I mean, I think either to, to some degree, I mean, I so I remember running the marathon and uh, the, the Marine Corps marathon uh, in sophomore year college. With Boyle. Yeah. yeah was Shout out to Chris Boyle. Yeah, Chris Boyle. Um, you know, so I remember thinking, well, that's a huge goal to try to, quite frankly, I think most people, I think most people who run a marathon will acknowledge it's actually the training that's the goal. That's the accomplishment, really. I mean, but by by the time you've done all of the training for months and months and months, it's nice to to run the 26 miles, but that's that's not what's impressive. I, I think the impressive part is the training that goes into running a marathon. Because the marathon is just your three or four or five hours on on cement, but you've put in countless hours prior to that. But anyway, so that was a, a huge goal for me. And then I will re, I remember crossing the finish line at the Marine Corps Marathon. And and I this is not to 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 demean anyone who's run a marathon because it is a big goal. But I, I I remember crossing that finish line thinking, nah. It really wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, yeah. I almost made it a bigger deal than it was. Um, I also remember as the Marine Corps marathon and some Marine got in my way and like ordered me to get in some line. He's like, you, in that line, you, over there. And I was like, really? Can you just let me revel in this for a second? And I was like, this, this, is, this, is, this is really not really not that big of a deal. I'm one of like 10,000 people that ran it today. Right. You know, you know how many people have run it? In the year yeah. and in the history of the world, it actually ain't that special. So to, to some degree, you make it through buds and you feel really, really good, but you're also with other people that have done it. And there are so many more accomplishments that you have to get to because you don't get your trident. You don't get your pin when you graduate buds. You still have a lot more to do yeah. before you actually become a Navy SEAL. That's just one of the many phases. Um, and then you find yourself overseas doing things and it just gets more. It's, the challenges just get bigger, I think. Well, that's that's something that I wanted I wanted to to hear from you because that's something that we talk about on this show all the time. People I think people think and sometimes people will write in about this and say, you know, it, it's like uh 
thinking, and I'm I'm guilty of it too in in my career, thinking like, oh, well, if I could just get there, it'll all be okay. But when you get there, actually, it's more responsibility, and so now you have to step up your game even more so. And and it's not like you graduate from it. It's actually like congratulations. Now you have more responsibility. Oh, you you did buds. Congratulations. Now you're gonna go do do everything else that you have to do for the next what year till you get your trident. Oh, you got your trident. Congratulations. Now you have to actually go do a real time mission. You know, it, it, it's. It's not like it's uh, you graduate and then you guys are all sitting by a pool sipping, you know, margaritas and like talking about what you did. Well, they but. told me that was how it's going to be. They completely <laughs> lied. I would have not just would have gone to flight school then. This is ridiculous. So I want to get into I want to kind of just shift gears for a second here. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, you have been around death in both fields. Uh as a SEAL, uh, I don't know specifically how. I, 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 we've not talked about that. We've talked about a lot of things, but I have not asked you like specifics about um, a lot of mission things. Uh, certainly as a surgeon, you, you lose people. Um, I know you are uh, a man of faith. I know you're a family man. I know you're a man of science also. Like, how do you how does it all work together in your head? That's a big question. I'm sorry yeah, to throw no, that, that at you. It's no, a really big question. It, it is. There's a vascular surgeon in uh, uh, that I work with who has a photo of an, a surgeon in the OR, and behind him is Jesus with his hand on his shoulder. And I say Jesus because that's the picture. Um, if you want to, you know, whatever your religion is, um, it can be that uh, that deity or spirit. Um, <coughs> It just you, you. This guy is he's Italian, my buddy, and he's Catholic, so he's gonna have Jesus up on his wall. Uh, and then you know you have these movies where people are transitioning, and TV shows where the doctors are screaming like, "Don't you know, come back here!" And um, yeah, I mean it's 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 uh, it's um, very different when they're dying, you know, literally, literally in your hands. I mean, I'll have, I mean, I'll, I'll squeeze people's heart until uh, I'm, when I stop squeezing, that's it. You know, there's nothing. Um, uh, or they die in the ICU when you're there with their, you know, their, their last breath, you see their last heartbeat. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a, yeah, boy, that's a, that's like a, that's a course we should, you and I should teach that at BC. Yeah. Um, there's so much involved with that. I'm not sure where I stand. I think when growing up Catholic, Growing up going to church on Sundays and meeting all my sacraments and stuff like that, and my kids go to Sunday school, and we try to go to church as a family, and we pray before um, meals, um, at least dinner time. Um, it, um, I, I think when, when I first started to travel the world is when I, I kind of started to go change my tomb from religious to spiritual. And... Um, despite what the Catholic Church might teach in particular about how to get to heaven, um, I think my understanding, probably the, the bigger question you're asking me is like, do you believe in life after death or do you believe this is random or do you believe there's a higher power? And at, at Boston College, they will call that higher power God. Um, 
other religions have other names. You know, my dad says, you know, my dad is very religious, but he refers to Mother Nature. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can talk about kind of the, the bigger um, organization of what's going on in life. Um, I still think um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for other religions. I still keep an open mind. Um, and if it's Buddha that's going to get me somewhere, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take Buddha. I mean, Buddha's a great man, you know. Um, uh, I had an opportunity to, to study um, the seven major religions of the world here at BC. It was a great course I took, um, I think, senior year of college. Um, the the, the uh, major Eastern and Western religions. Um, I... I, I think to some degree the complexity that I've been able to see as a scientist to human physiology, I don't think is random. I don't have an answer. Um, and I always tell my residents this, the more I progress in my career, the harder this gets for me. And I think— Oh, this you know, being what you do this as being a what, surgeon? As a surgeon. I mean, medicine gets harder and harder for me, not easier and easier. Um, I think as you understand all the potential outcomes and the true complexities of what's going on, we can dumb it down and make things seem easy. But, you know, there's the, well, how does a car work? Well, you, you fill up, you get a car, you fill up the tank with gas, you put the key in, you turn the ignition— which fires up the spark plug and gets the engine going, you shift into drive and you press the accelerator. That's pretty easy. Well, maybe it's not that easy, yeah. you know? So, okay, so what happens, you know? How, how do you digest food? What happens when you get shot? You know, how do you, how do you, how does your body stop bleeding? What is the natural mechanism? You can make it simple, but I think the more I learn, the more complex it gets, and then it starts to become familiar. Then you go a level deeper, and it gets more complex. Right. Then you become familiar. Then you get to go a little level deeper. I mean, this is what most experts say, right? Yeah. Um, and as I'm, and I'm certainly not an expert, but as I am trying to a approach expertise, um, it gets harder and harder. And my point is, as I see the science of the human body and medicine getting harder and harder, it is difficult to say this is random. Now, you could say, sure, with a perfect planet through the perfect distance from a heat source and every, all the atoms and elements were set up appropriately. But I, 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 I think it is more spiritual than that. Mm -hmm. And for me, I mean, we can, we can simplify it and say, well, my, you know, to, to help me, I can pray to Jesus. Um, and other people can pray to Muhammad or can pray to Moses or Abraham or can pay, can pray to whomever, whatever, you know, um, but that, that kind of simplifies it to some degree, right? Cause like, oh, well, there's a man, Jesus will help me out. Well, probably more complex than that. But at least that allows our simple mind to grasp something and we can rely on our, our, our comfort zone. It gives us a way in. Yeah. And yeah. our comfort zone is our own religion. Um, um, so again, this is not exciting. I'm not the first person to say any of this, but I, um, 
you know, I mean, now she's been going a whole nother route of <clears throat> wars over religion and all that stuff. And what does all that mean? But we don't, we won't go there. But um, so to answer you as a, as a scientist, as a family man, as someone who was relayed, raised in a, um, in a community of religion, I still haven't drawn conclusions um, I can tell you when things get bad, when I find out a family member's sick or maybe there's a diagnosis of a family member, I can tell you the first thing I do is pray. And then I'm not praying enough because, you you know, I'm not uh, I should be praying when I'm not in need. Um, but I, 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 I certainly want to I certainly have an open mind to the complexity of whatever is out there. Um, and um, I'm not sure, you know, all the hundreds and potentially thousands of religions in the history of the world are wrong. I think we uh, are on to something. Not sure what it is. Yeah, that's that's a, a way more articulate way of saying kind of what I believe, too. I, I believe I believe there's something. I mean, just the, the older I get, actually, the more I see the connected nature of the world and people and how things that seem like they're random, they're really, they, they feel like coincidences. I don't know if I'm just, you know, maybe I'm just doing that to put it, to to make it all make sense to me. So I line it up in a way that like, that I can explain it that way to myself. My thought is, you know, none of us really knows until we actually die what happens. And until then, I'm going to choose this one that it, that I feel empowers me. I I do believe it, but I can, yeah I, I can't you know I I would certainly uh, not be you know murdering someone else over my religious beliefs, saying they're wrong because I think it's that's kind of defeats the purpose. You know, it's like what do you you know who who's to say? You do your thing, you play in your sandbox. I'm going to play in mine, and let's not let's respect each other. Uh, you know, but I, I do agree. I believe there is a, a higher power. And I also think maybe not as important what the semantics are, what you're, what you're calling them. I happen to believe in God and that's, but I don't, you know, I can't really tell someone else what to believe in. Um, I want to kind of touch on one little thing that, that, uh, I, because I just had this experience yesterday, which maybe by the time this comes out, I'll have talked about it a little bit. I don't know. But, the, you know, riding along with the, the gang unit, there was something that came up yesterday, which is kind of the joking that, the, the, you know, like the high stakes job that they have and just the funny guys and the, and the, the, the levity that they all had. Like it, it was just really like a it was a fun day because they're they're having fun and it's light because they have to do it that way. And you and I, long time ago, had a conversation where I said, what show or movie gets it right about, you know, hospital shows? Is it ER? Is it, what is it? And you said, Scrubs. Ironically, we got to get Bill Lawrence, the creator. He, li he lives in my town. He coached against Donovan. I got to get him on this show to talk about this. But one thing you said was Scrubs. And I remember being shocked. And you said, no, Scrubs kind of nailed the tone because- what we're doing in the hospital, the stakes are so high that, that we have to, if if we were to look at straight in the face what we're actually doing every day, we probably couldn't handle it in some way, or we, we have to make light of it. 
Was that the same thing with when you were uh, working with the seals? Was it the same thing? Because it's, it's, just because why are you laughing? <laughs> We've talked about this. Uh, I mean, I am convinced that in your community in Hollywoodland. People base things off of what they've seen in other movies. <laughs> so maybe other than Mark Bowl, who actually talked to some real frogmen, um, and that's a whole, I got another funny story to tell you, either on or off the record. Um, I, I just think it is like, you watch like NCIS or anything, and like you, they're on a base, and there's always this random platoon of people in the background running. I've never seen that. Like, what, I mean, barring from boot camp, you don't just go to the Navy NCIS base and there are just platoons of people jog- running in formation. I, don't, I mean, it's just so ridiculous. And the way people talk to each other, I mean, no one talks like that. I mean, I, one of my, one of, there are a few a few moments in my life where I have been privileged to be a fly on the wall. Um, I happened to be in the room for a reason, but really I was a fly on the wall because I was basically irrelevant. Um, and one was in Afghanistan um, in a trip in 2014. And I happened to be with some guys from the Navy Development Group, which was formerly referred to as SEAL Team 6. And with some guys in the Dev uh, Group, is that the yeah Dev yeah. Group, okay. um, and uh, guys who were, for all intents and purposes, their name has changed multiple times, but they're they used to be called Delta Force. So it was a bunch of a couple of Delta some Delta Force guys, some SEAL Team Six guys. Just I'll use that terminology because it's familiar. Um, and then I was in a support unit. As I said, I'm not an athlete. I'm an athletic supporter. Um, and so I was supporting what the super, super, super cool guys doing super, super cool things. And I was not super cool. Um, and listening to them talk, I feel like if that were in a movie, it would have been so different of like their tone and their bravado and their seriousness. Yeah. And these were just like, these were like 30 year old guys just talking, having a conversation about where they're going to put their snipers, how they're going to lead the launch, you know, the attack, kind of where they're going to expect to encounter um, some resistance, you know, how they're going to, you know, neutralize that threat. You know, they're not like, and then if we see the enemy, we're going <laughs> to kill them. I mean, they're, they're on a mission. Of course they're going to kill them. That's what they do. These are not nice people. They kill people. Um, and they're just having a normal conversation. All right. And it is, I, I, and I was, and I just was thinking, and I actually kind of thought about you. You would have loved to have been in there because if you wrote this in a movie, it would have been played out very differently because it would have been, if they'd done it the way it normally is, it would have been boring. You would have said, well, these are just a bunch of 30-year-olds having a conversation. And instead of, you know, putting a lecture together at Boston College, they're just talking about, you know, killing quite a few people. Right. But but the, the conversation is normal. Right. You know, and that's, you know, when... Most of the time, I mean, even before a jump, you know, we're doing a halo, you got your oxygen on, you can't really talk to people because your O2's on, the lights are off, you can't see anything. People are, you know, you are serious, you're going through your jump in your head, but people will still do goofy things, you know. I mean, yeah. you're you're waddling up to the edge and the, the lights are green. And you're, you're believe me, when game's on, game is on. Right. But it, it, you're not serious 100% of the time. You, you're barely serious 1% of the time. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, uh, it's only like the, se- the, the, the the seconds or minutes you're doing the hard stuff where, you know, where the real mission is happening that you're um, uh, uh, totally locked, that in. you're totally locked in. Um, and it's the same thing, you know, we're waiting for a trauma to come in and. You know, we hear, you know, gunshot to the belly, hypotensive, you know, low blood pressure, heart rates up, I'll use non-medical terms, you know, and you're waiting and you do the, you do your trauma pre-brief and you're all ready. And then there's like a delay, you know, and then someone's like, all right, so what's going on with that patient up on the floor? You know, oh yeah, they're still constipated. You know, the nurse keeps calling me to increase their bowel regimen. You're just talking about like the most mundane things, you know, you're not, you're not just in, you're not just... No, well, staring at the I mean, table, locked and focused, and you're thinking, this patient's going to come in. We're going to innovate them. I'm going to open up their left chest and cross-clamp their aorta and squeeze their heart and get them to the operating room. You're like, well, I've done it before. <laughs> you well, know? That, that's what you and I have had this conversation, but I'm glad to have it in front of other people, other imaginary people. <laughs> there's not, there's literally, like, there's my mom won't even listen this far into this <laughs> podcast. Pam would have signed off so long ago. Well, we should have done. Honestly, we we should have like ordered some food, gotten a couple beers, and our conversations are so much better when there's not a mic. Because I mean, we've had this really is true, but you know we're going to go do that after this anyway. I know, so. and you're going to say, "I'm telling you tonight at North End." Like, I wish we had the mic. Yeah, you're going to say, "I wish we had the mic." That's life, though. Yeah. that's it. That is it. And yeah. I actually think that your stuff is w- way more interesting to people. I hope we'll see, and if not, whatever. Then you think it is. And look, the, the perfect example is this: right before we came in. Uh, the the woman, Bella, who was out there, she said, oh, she was at my my talk the other night at BC. And I said, oh, you know, thanks for coming. What'd you think? I loved it. I, I had some, <laughs> she said, I had some feedback. And I was like, oh boy. And and her feedback was, you know, everybody That's really such liked- a new generation thing yeah, to say. Yeah, I had some know? feedback. I was like- this. I said, hey, I, I got some, you know, there's so, uh, it's gotta be feedback. You know? Feedback. So I was like, I said, oh man. So so she, I said, what, what'd you think? And she goes, I really liked it. And I was like, oh God. Oh, so, so she's doing the compliment sandwich or like the, like the yeah. bread. Yeah, yeah, the bread I, is yeah, a really and the it. meat she's is like, a... She's like, the only thing is... You know, you know, one you know, little tiny, voice, if I had to yeah. say something... When the something. voice goes off a little bit, she goes, there's only one thing. She's like, you know, um, we, we really liked all the stuff on, on perseverance and resilience and everything. But, like, I think everybody, you know, they knew you were from Scandal and from, you know, uh, they did you did Sopranos or whatever. Like, you know, saying, I think they wanted to hear, like, a little more, like, Behind the scenes Hollywood stuff, like how was it working with Kerry Washington, you know that kind of thing. And I'm like, I'm like, actually, someone did ask that, and I did, and I did say it. I said, but you know what? I feel one. I feel weird talking about that. It feels like, it feels like gossip, and it feels like not right. And I think that's that's kind of how you are. But I also think like they're like, you know, people are really fascinated with actors. And they, she's like, you know, I came in and I had you, I knew you as Michael Ambruso from from Scandal. And I had you like this. And then at the end, I was like, oh, he's actually like a, a nice, cool, normal, chill dude. And I was like, well, yeah, I was like, my, that's the whole point of this podcast. Like, my life is certainly not like, it's not um, glamorous in some way, but no one wants to know that in a, in a way. Like I always, as I've told you, I look at Entourage. Maybe Entourage was Mark Wahlberg's experience. I kind of don't think it was. To me, I see it and I'm like, that's just not anything like my life. If you followed me and Messina around and you listen, it would be exactly like what you're talking about with your doctors in the OR. You'd hear a bunch of like random kind of like, you know, 
like total inside jokes. We've known each other, what, 25 years. It's the same way you and I are. You, you, you could say one thing and it sparks a whole line of like almost code language that nobody would know what you're talking about, but you know exactly what it is. But to the outsiders, like if you put that in a movie, I personally think that would be awesome. You know, I don't know how people would react to it. I think the problem is people want to, whether it's a it's a courtroom drama, my dad used to say like, oh, this is terrible. This is not how it happened. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a movie, dad. They got to, you know, it's- <laughs> It's entertainment. It's a little bit, <laughs> it's entertainment. No, but it's, it's a little bit like, I don't know if people- want the truth. I think, or I think it's maybe it's harder to really give them the truth, but you also have to, you have to compress it. Cause if they're just watching life, they watch like a video feed of, of these guys, you know, the SEAL team six talking, if they just watch like a, like a, you know, Instagram live of them hanging out talking, they might be like, well, there's no story there. So that, I think it gets condensed in a movie. And unfortunately it gets ratcheted up and then actors come in and want to do things for, for ulterior motives to, <laughs> to bring things their way. And they, and they, they overdo it. And then the people that really are doing that thing, you know, the, the guys I went out with yesterday, the gang, unit. I mean, they, you should, I love hearing them talk about, you know, act. They'll probably talk smack about me once they see me do my thing, but they, they they're just like, Oh, that's not the way it is. You know, like they, they're, they just laugh at, it because that's actually what their life is. Well, so you know? the point of that's what their life is. So I, you know, the, people talk about the new normal. So you do something, you know, you so, uh, you know, you, 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 you check into buds, and I'm kind of like, you know, this is amazing. And by day three of getting, you know, my ego shoved down my throat and getting completely beaten up, it it becomes normal to some degree. Like walking through those walking through the front gate and the doors aren't so exciting anymore. And then putting on the uniform and getting, you know, wet and sandy the first time it's like, Oh, I think I've seen this in a, in a magazine. It, it, it ain't, it ain't a big deal. You know, you, you, you go to the hospital, you do a major trauma, stuff like that. But I, I remember in Afghanistan, um, one of my pumps there, I was walking with, uh, some couple of the other docs and nurses, a couple of Canadians, cause we were with the Canadians over there. Um, and, um, Mortars came in, and we're just talking. I don't know where we're going, but it's it's at night. It's dark out. Um, mortars come in, so we weren't near a bunker, so we just kind of like sheltered in place. We kind of like hugged the ground, didn't move, um, and then EOD came and did their thing, and then they like you know, you know, call the all clear or something. I don't know. Maybe we made it to a bunker. I can't, I can't really remember. But what I remember was is after a couple minutes of just like kind of laying in the dirt, having our hands over our neck and just hanging out there. We just continued our conversation that we were having, you know, like yeah. it, it, it was like not a just not a big deal, you know. And then it's, and then we're like, God, when are they going to give the all clear? This is like ridiculous, you know. We're just trying to get from point A to point B. It's, it's like annoying, you know. And um, then they give, you know, they call the all clear. You get it, but you just keep going. And and but that's a new normal, right? So that for for most people, that is not normal when the mortars start coming in. Right. But when you've when you heard it. it a lot, and sometimes the mortars unfortunately struck, you know, they struck their target, and then we'd run to the OR and start operating. Um, but it's it's just the new normal, right? So I would imagine, I mean, to some degree, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you kept your enthusiasm for Sopranos because that was remarkable, but and maybe you weren't on it, you know, enough, or or, or maybe it just got to the point where you, you know you drove in, you parked the car, you you, you read your lines, and it. 
kind of became normal, you know, to, to, to some degree. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of true with everything. You know, once you hit the new normal, you're just back to being a regular. Human. Well, I think once you hit the new normal, it's what you talked about before with medicine. Then you have to dive deeper. To get the challenge and to get the adrenaline, you have to dive deeper. So you got to be better. So you're like, because, yeah, all of a sudden it's like the once if that stops being exciting, then the the job, like for me as an actor, the job is you've got to stay alive with it. Otherwise, you know, why do this? Go do something else that's like more, you know, just go get a paycheck somewhere. Like you may as well really. So so the job is actually. How do you stay uh, alive with the material and like really so that you're not just driving in, you know, putting the car in the parking lot, walking in, which does happen sometimes. I mean, that's happened to me. I feel lucky actually in the last couple of years that that I, I somehow seem to reverse that. I think it was starting to happen where I was just I had become like a um, almost like a a shell of myself for a little bit where I, I had a little period where I was like doing jobs that I wasn't fully, you know, engaged with and it didn't feel great and it really didn't feel great. And then, and then I kind of felt like I made some internal shifts and then I got work that was more, uh, challenging or up my alley or they gave me more to do. And then I felt more used up and I want to feel more used up and, and then, and then it gets exciting again. And then that where, you know, that, that's the thing too. It's like, it, it's like what you said. It's easy to make that rah rah speech and like, boom, and you and you like go onto the field and <laughs> the crowd is there. It's like, but then like, the crowd disperses, the lights go off. You know, the guy is sweeping <laughs> the thing, and like, how do you feel then? And I think that's what decides if you really want to do whatever that thing is that you're doing. Is are you still excited about it when the lights are off? The, the janitor's actually swept the whole stadium and, and is gone. And now there you are. Are you still psyched about it? You yeah, know? I, I would agree. But I think and, and, and maybe I didn't use the right verbiage. It's not that when something becomes the new normal, it becomes boring. But it just becomes it becomes a level of comfort. Yes. So it's I'm, not it's not such a big deal. I'm, I'm, uh, and so I still get. I mean, I still get, you know, I mean, you know, I, depending on when the trauma is coming in, I mean, my, you know, I still get excited many times. Um, you can control it a little differently, but I'm just saying you're, you, you can have, you can have the, it, it would be difficult. So let's just say, uh, you know, skydiving. Okay. So, so let's say you're not at military free fall school and you, you just are a civilian who wants to do one free fall. One tandem jump, not even on your own. So you, you go to the local um, drop zone, you pay your money, and they take you up to 12,000 feet. It's hard to have a totally normal, let's say you and I did it and we were in college. Actually, I did it in college. You know, did you know Mako and I jumped out in a skydive? Uh, it was out in Western Mass. What was it called? I do remember that yeah. story. And then yeah. I jumped with Deirdre through yeah, Gus yeah, Kaminsky. Yeah, Gus, May yeah. rest in peace. Yeah, yeah. for you. Um, but um, anyway, so if you and I went, you know, in high school and I, you know, going our, our conversation as that little plane is puttering up, doing circles above the clouds to 12,000. It's hard to have a totally normal conversation. We may have a nervous conversation, but we wouldn't have a totally relaxed conversation. I could have a totally relaxed conversation now on my way up to a free fall. That's not to say that I don't get excited to jump. And when that door opens, my heart is racing. Right. 
But the new normal of I've done this many, How many, many times, many, by the way? Thousands? Oh, no, no, no. I'm like sky trash up there. My short little legs can barely control me. But, um, but certainly hundreds of times. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, I've jumped you know, many, many hundreds of times. Um, but, but that's what I mean. So like the gang unit guys, if they're getting a brief, they've heard it many, many times. They can have a normal conversation on the way to the cruiser on the way in a pursuit. Now, uh, once, they, once they're close, again, game on. Yeah. But my point is, uh, in a lot of movies, at the time where people should be more comfortable, they're a little too rah-rah. Of course, that is yeah. exciting because, as I, you know, if, if, if you want reality, just turn on CNN. Nobody yeah. wants that. You want yeah. to actually go pay your $15, you know, for a movie nowadays, which should be three bucks. Uh, actors are overpaid. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> No, it's the producers. Um, you, you you actually want excitement. But I just think it would be interesting to show some reality. And that's actually what Scrubs yeah. did. And is- I do think that the great the great films and TV shows actually do what you're talking about. I think there there's a way to to give us both. Give us the authenticity and also give us the the heightened fact that like we're showing you this particular scene on this particular day in this particular order for this particular character. That's why you're seeing it. Cause you do have to choose which one, like why is this scene in here? What does it do? How is it advancing the character, deepening the character or the, or the story in some way, but there is a way to do it. And the best ones do where it also feels, feels real. It's not real, but it feels real and it feels authentic and in the best cases, to someone who actually does it, they feel you, you know, the, the greatest movie would be if you're watching something about surgeons or like you said about scrubs and you're going, yeah, that seems familiar to me. And I'm also going, not a medical professional going, oh, I really like this show. I, it's really funny. It's entertaining. And it, and it moved me. And you're like, yeah, I did that. And it was real. That's boom, grand slam. And that's few and far between. Definitely. Um, I want to go uh, get some Italian food with you. So unfortunately, unfortunately, or fortunately for all of our listeners, the, the, I think this conversation is going to end. I, I, I think, you know, people write in because Bernsey is obviously uh, no, feeling don't. like he's Do not right. No, no, I don't. About no, I, his, you're like not going to let me. I, I have not going to let me even air this thing. I, 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 I'm not going to check. I, I'm not going to update the MyFace account. I'm not going to go on InstaFish. We're not going to do any of that stuff. Bernsey, by the way, is the most backward for all that he has accomplished. He is. And, and my my. The friends from college will agree to this. Just the most backwards, like terrible tech guy ever. But although I don't believe it because you must have done stuff through work that was this way. But he really is like you you are in like the 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 like the stone age in terms of some of the stuff. I love the joke. You also like to make fun of yourself with the, the my, my, what do you call it? My face yeah. and snap Insta fish. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't even know what that, I, I have, I, yeah, you're not a I've social never, media guy. No. And I love that. No. I love that. And I, and I, and I'm because a little, it's all, I don't, I don't yeah. like that. Cause it's just me, 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 me. Right. And look yeah. at me. I'm on vacation. Uh, look how cool my vacation is. Look it at, is. It is. Look it, how good looking my kids are. Look at, uh, well, it depends though. You know what? Here's the, here's the other thing. Yes, it is overwhelmingly it is, but it also is like anything else. Like, uh, you know, a gun can be used to uh, to murder someone. A gun can be used to 
uh, save a family. You know, social media can be used to be me, 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 or social media could be used to outreach to people that wouldn't otherwise hear a message, which, you know, and you're smirking. He's smirking, guys. But but no, look, I, I, I accept what you're saying. <laughs> You're just a short German friend of mine, and I'm not going to take it. You're, you're my tall Italian friend, and I love you. Um, I all right. I'm going to give you three questions. Well, this isn't a question. This is is, is this like what, what the, the studio actors guild? Is this where they like do three questions? This is well, they, he does like fifteen of oh, them probably. Okay. But this is my own, this is okay. my own version of okay. that. This is uh, so, so so if I had if I listened to your podcast because I don't listen, to you podcasts, would hear yeah. I, I would. I would just are these, are these the, I'm not releasing. I love your podcast. I've heard I've heard all three of them. <laughs> Uh, are these three Do you questions? even know what a podcast is? <laughs> I don't know. It's something on an iPod. I know that. No. Um, are these three questions you ask everybody? I do. Okay. For the most, some people get away without them because sometimes it's just. But like I, I think one thing of note, and again, you, you, this is great that you'll go through this. But one one nice thing, and I've seen some of your work on television and stuff. Like no doubt. I mean, I've, I've supported you because you're one of my best friends, and I. You know, I want to get that, you know, I want them to get one more viewer that watched your, that watched your show. But in general, there's a lot of your material that I haven't seen. And so, you know, truly you're just my, one of my best friends from college. Right. And so I, I, you know, if I, I, what I think's interesting is so to my kids, your uncle Deli, right. But to, to other people who recognize you, they're, you you mean something different. And likewise, I mean, if I saw someone that I had never met before, but I recognized from a TV show or a movie, it, you you can't help but either act different or feel different, or or, or there is just something about a celebrity. You know, it's kind of like what I I almost you know. It, well, it, 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 it's hard to put into words, but what I, what I think is interesting is I, I, I haven't seen a lot of your stuff. I, I haven't listened to your podcast. <laughs> I'm a terrible friend in support. No, but- and uh, it, it, I, I, I think it's interesting. I remember one of my first deployments in the 90s in Japan watching a show in Japanese, and there was some famous Japanese actor that everyone was going nuts for. It was like a talk show. And clearly you could tell when this person came out to talk to the host, the crowd went nuts. To me, it meant absolutely nothing. The person I had never seen, I don't know if it was a singer or an actor or a politician, I have no idea, but it meant abs- they meant absolutely nothing to me, you know? And it's interesting when you, you know, if you meet someone and then you find out later, oh, they were, they played, they played for 10 years on the Jets. Oh my God, that person was a, professional football player. I had no idea. Like it almost makes you feel differently. And one of the beauty of like our relationship is to its core, it is pure. Like not that seeing you in a movie and I want to see you in a major movie and I want to see you getting your, uh, in fact, I think I told you like one of my goals in life is you, what's the top award? Not the Emmy award, but the The Oscars. Oscars. Yeah. It's like, I want to be, I want to come out of the OR Having done a great case in the middle of the night and then finding out, like, you know, that you just want, because I'm going to be working, I'm sure, because I'm <laughs> always on call. So if you're on a, if, like, if I want to find out that you won an Oscar, you know, and like that would make me so proud. I won't even see you on You'll never TV. watch the movie. I'll no. never actually watch it. <laughs> but uh, I just think it's funny. The only reason I say that is because you said it. You said, oh, I got three questions for you, almost as if I was like prepared for this. So no, I, have, I know. No, I, I know, no, I know. Or no, no, but, I, I, but it's funny. So I have no idea what you're going to ask. And, 
Um, well, uh, you know, had I known you were going to ask me three questions, maybe I would have prepared something. No, I love that. No, nobody knows. I mean, unless they listen, I guess they they would know, but, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. The same thing right back at you with all the stuff that you've done. You're still da burn to me. You're da deli. Uh, all right. Uh, and I've never seen your work. Good. Okay, so. <laughs> good. Um, well, that's very good. Yeah. Yeah, because you don't want to be on the other end of the you mission, know, and, and you don't want to be my by the way, And by the way, I promise you guys, I, I am wrapping this up. But but I, it is, it's a bummer, because I, I was going to say, like, you know, what are some of the sacrifices that you've had to make? And you said, I'll probably be, be working. One of the things that, that's remarkable with you, as much as you do work, you're also coaching your kids in sports. Like, you are also present. But you're also, you are working a lot. But you have a you've somehow managed to to do kind of all of it and it's uh my my hat's off to you because the people out there that don't know you that the that are serviced by your skills as a surgeon appreciate it like so the world out there at large appreciates it but your your kids and your wife Stephanie who also does the same thing by the way stuck in the OR she's in the OR right now but you guys have managed to do to do both. And, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. And I know there's a lot of sacrifice. And if anybody has gotten this far into this, this conversation, you know, you don't get to do all of these things without a just unbelievable amount of sacrifice. And I know you have given up so many things in order to do all the things that we're talking about here and many other things that we're not covering. Um, anyway, going to give you these things. Complete this sentence. The word no means what to you? It means nothing. It just means nothing. Just like you don't even hear it. Boom. <laughs> uh, go-to mantra. When everything hits the fan, what is your... Do you have a go-to mantra that gets you through it or no? Mm, you know, there's a phrase in the team, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Um, and so in the OR, uh, sometimes I have to force myself to go slow because um, no matter how slow you think you're moving you're in, in an emergency, you're actually probably moving very fast. Um, so that's one thing I would say. Slow, slow is smooth, smooth and smooth is fast. So in other words, slow down, you'll actually get more done yeah. than if you rush through it. Yeah. I mean, another mentor used to say, you know, it's not fast if you have to do it twice. Uh, I think I've told you this. I remember we were like rushing to go to school. My son, we were late. We're, we walked to school and and I was probably t- not too hard on my son, but I was like, Joseph, let's go, let's go. And he, and he tied his shoelaces three times because he kept messing it up. And if he had just been slow, he would have tied it once, and we actually would have exited the door a couple of seconds yeah. earlier. And maybe if his father and wasn't his father yelling at him, berating him like yeah. that, he would have oh, come generation, you know, they hand on his back, Joseph. It's, <laughs> o- it's okay. Yeah. Whenever you get that shoe tied, <laughs> um, and the last thing is, if you could give advice to your younger self, what age would you intervene, <laughs> and what would the advice be? Um, so right off the bat, I don't have an answer for you. Um, my, my advice would probably be, so to talk, to talk a little bit about what you said, sacrifice. Um, and I would say, you know, sacrifice hurts to the bone. And again, we're not going into the pain of, SEAL training and the pain of deployment and the pain of med school, residency, fellowship, you know, operating in the middle of the night on no sleep. Um, I mean, this week alone, I'm doing 95 hours in the hospital. 
Um, 95 hours yep. in the hospital. Yep. I just left the operating room and I got a very busy day. I mean, this is why I was able to work this out today. But I, I, I ran out of the OR to come to do this with you. Um, and um, I, I think to some degree, um, I may tell myself you have no idea how hard it's going to be because it's far harder than I thought it was going to be. But I might say, uh, don't worry, the the reward is worth it. But um, I think to some degree, that doesn't really mean anything because when you are sacrificing and you are hurting to the bone, no matter how cold you are in the surf zone or no matter how scared you are when the patient's, you know, you can't get that patient back. It's easy to say now in a controlled setting, it's hard to internalize when you're in that situation. And I have put myself in some precarious situations. So I probably would not listen to whatever advice I have because <laughs> it doesn't really matter that it's worth it in the end. And I'm still trying to make things worth it. Um, but, um, and I probably wouldn't want to hear, this is going to be a lot harder than you think. And I thought it was going to be hard. But again, we haven't gone into that. Cause that probably would have been a much more interesting podcast. <laughs> Man, you've just insulted me. No, 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 no. No, okay. no. no, but, but, I, but, no but, but I do but, think that as we get there, I'm like, oh, yeah, we, we kind of missed all this hardship. But I feel like we we got the core of you. And now we can pull you back in, in, in 2022. We'll come back for a reprise. Well, you and I are going to no, go. We'll go on. You're saying but you, we're not getting into all of it. But you, were, I thought there was a but in there. Like you were going to you had some special Oh, I, it, what it was, was it was probably one of the most beautiful things I ever put together. But then just as you interrupted me, it left and I'll, I'll never, never get it back. I just, so I do have two things. This is so sweet. You can, um, you can, uh, you can edit this one. Um, 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 Flock of Seagulls called because of your hair that's extending out from your sideburns. Is it right now? Oh, it's unbelievable. The, the 80s is calling. And uh, this entire conversation, you've had just a little piece of food, <laughs> food stuck in your tooth. You really think I, I'm going to edit this out of the conversation? This is the best part of the conversation. It's on the other tooth. It's on the- <laughs> well, let's tell the higher. It's right there. You can't get You probably have to switch some water. It's hilarious. <laughs> oh, my God. We're going to end with that ridiculousness. Um, and, and yeah, I'm not editing any of this stuff out unless you're threatening to kill me with a cocktail straw, in which case I will. Otherwise, um, it's probably all going to stay in warts and all, because I think as much as you don't think it's interesting, you don't think it's helpful, I, I actually think it it is. And I guess uh, people will write in and say, no, Matt, you're wrong. Burns, you <laughs> was right. This is terrible. And you should shut down this podcast entirely. No more 10,000 no's. Da Burn, Chris Burns. Oh, I always say I will put links to the guests' uh, stuff in the show notes, but there are no links really for Burns because he's zero, like zero literally like zero. you are one guy that like you have no, there is n- nothing to like, I, I don't know where I'd point people. It's I, like, this I, is what it is. I, and if they get to meet you someday, they can go out to the North End and have Italian food with you, but they're not going to get anything online. I have no interweb footprint. No footprint. Love that. Yeah. He's a ghost. <laughs> but tell me something. If you were in the air, would you want him flying with me? Or flying with you? I don't know. I don't know. I just don't, I just know. don't know. Get him up in the air. What we do here is go back, 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 back. Well, I hope you're still here. 
so I'm right and Dr. Burns was wrong. Either way, here are my top three takeaways. I'll keep them quick so he doesn't come hunt me down. Number one, the simplicity of Chris Burns, how he wanted to be a surgeon from such a young age based on one surgery. And I had a problem and the surgeon fixed it. And I, that was a very real tangible for me. And I thought, I want to be a surgeon because I want to take a problem and fix, and fix it. it. Yeah. In so many aspects, Chris is the perfect example of that acronym KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. He has accomplished so much because he's so much more decisive than the average human and he doesn't second guess things. Side note, he's the exact same way when he orders Italian food. Number two. His observation of the first seals he saw up close when he toured the base as a 20-year-old and was in awe before realizing, I may tell myself you have no idea how hard it's going to be because it's far harder than I thought it was going to be. But I might say, uh, don't worry, the, the reward is worth it. But um, I think to some degree... That doesn't really mean anything because when you are sacrificing and you are hurting to the bone, no matter how cold you are in the surf zone or no matter how scared you are when the patients, you know, you can't get that patient back. It's easy to say now in a controlled setting. It's hard to internalize when you're in that situation. And I have put myself in some precarious situations. Another classic Burnsism. He takes the drama out of it by breaking it down to its smaller parts and then piecing it back together again. I think that methodology is a major reason why he has accomplished so much in his life. Number three, this is kind of a combo platter and I'm mashing two of his final answers together. The first is... There's a phrase in the team, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And the second is that... Sacrifice hurts to the bone. Again, so simple. Keep it slow. Keep it simple. Keep it steady. And it is not easy. You want a life like this guy, a legacy like this guy? There's a reason so few people can even do one of the things he's done, let alone all of them. But it's a methodical and relentless pursuit of excellence in whatever he happens to be focused upon. All that being said, above all of his accomplishments is his good heart and his desire to give back and serve. And I feel lucky to call him my friend. And he would feel lucky that this episode is finally over if he ever listened to it, but he won't, which is the way it should be. Thank you, Dr. Christopher J. Burns. Thank you all for listening. Check out the links in our show notes for more information about Chris, links to similar past guests, where to follow me on social media so you can get announcements and promo videos of who's next. Be added to our mailing list, contact us, or shop for T-shirts and hats in our store at 10,000nose.com. All the links are there. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so you don't miss any episodes when they come out and don't be afraid to share it with your friends. See you next week. 